We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening by Angelica Ong of the Taipei Times. Always a pleasure to be with you, Gavin. And commentator Sean Sue. Great to be back again. And we'll begin where this week began, that being on Sunday, October the 10th, when the government celebrated Double Ten National Day with a larger than normal military parade outside the presidential office. The event included flyovers by 12 types of military aircraft, aircraft and helicopters, and displays of major missile systems. Now, the Ministry of National Defense explained that the decision to make it larger than normal was basically part of an expanded celebration to mark the 110th anniversary of the R. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen's National Day address was geared at touting the government's determination to defend Taiwan's sovereignty and democracy amid what she described as unprecedented challenges brought by China's increasing military coercion. Tsai reiterated that her administration's goodwill towards Beijing is ongoing, and it's also continuing moves to prevent any unilateral changes to cross-strait status quo. The president laid out four commitments, which she said should serve as a common ground for the people of Taiwan, despite different political affiliations, and those comments included having an enduring commitment to a free and democratic constitutional system, a commitment that the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China should not be subordinate to each other, a commitment to resist annexation or encroachment upon Taiwan's sovereignty, and a commitment that the future of the Republic of China-Taiwan must be decided in accordance with the will of the Taiwanese people. Tsai went on to thank Japan, the United States, Lithuania, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, as well as Poland, for their respective donations of coronavirus vaccines to Taiwan. And she also spoke of the need for Taiwan to expand trade relations with its major partners and also for the global semiconductor chips shortage, which Tsai said has highlighted Taiwan's importance in global supply chains. Now, not to be outdone, the KMT met outside its headquarters in Taipei on Double Ten National Day, where they held a flag-raising ceremony. And the big wigs there touted their cross policies. And, well, former President Ma Ying-jeou stressed his belief that the 1992 consensus is vital to maintaining cross-strait relations. That comment was seen in response to a speech by China's leader Xi Jinping, in which he said China will insist on peaceful reunification with Taiwan, the one country, two systems arrangement, the 1992 consensus, and the one China principle. And according to the former president, the fact that Beijing continues to list the 1992 consensus and its one China principle separately is an important message. As Ma says, that implies the two are not the same thing. And Ma also said at the flag raising event that that's an indication that there is space for each side to seek common ground while maintaining differences of opinion. So, Sean, we have a lot more more military hardware on display at National Day. Yeah, I wasn't surprised. Actually, it's a good move because uh, recently uh, the Thai administration has also increased further yet again uh, the military budget, which uh, and also cooperating with other nations in potentially staving off a more aggressive China. Uh, However, I do think that this is more or less other than uh, some without some slight modifications, otherwise pretty much 
I had a strong sense of deja vu. Uh, and the reason is because it feels like Double Ten Day has become a tradition, a relatively new tradition from a historical perspective. But every time it comes around, uh, China does the same thing, which is, you know, more flyovers, more warnings to other nations like India to not talk about Double Ten Day. They react appropriately the same way. Uh, the KMT always reacts by saying that, oh, Tsai did not emphasize the Republic of China enough. Yet, ironically, she's also emphasizing defense. So it's it's it feels pretty much uh, mostly the same. If China did not do so many flyovers recently in the past uh, week or so, then, you know, maybe they would not have had as much of a military display, but it comes anyway during double 10. So I, I feel like there's there's just a tradition here almost. You might as well call it like a, a collective international holiday in this area of the globe. Well, I agree with Sean, absolutely. There's a, there's a, there's a um, feeling that everybody has their role to play in this uh, little kabuki dance. But at the same time, I have to say, um, I found Tsai's speech so accomplished. It's just the right amount of rousing while still being very, very temperate. And uh, if this is indeed like this annual tradition where everybody plays their part. I think she did her job very, very well. I think she, um, in Taiwan, one of our biggest problems, of course, China <laughs> China is our biggest problem, but, uh, you know, right after that would be our lack of unity and uh, the stark amount of partisanship that is um, in, in Taiwan. And she did a very good job of appropriating um, Republic of China imagery and saying Republic of China over and over again in a way that um, is inclusive. It's, it, because I think there's uh, been a lot of talk about how the um, military of Taiwan can be seen as a more of a institution that's a uh, still got its vestigial connections to the previous regime and thus making it hard to incorporate into the new Taiwanese narrative. But in fact, that is exactly what has to happen in order for us to have a strong defense that is unified. And I thought high speech and uh, um, the military pageantry and the flag waving did, all did a very good job of um, doing that. It, she lauded the military as an essential part of guarding Taiwan's democracy. And uh, um, I think, um, you know, one, I don't say this often, but uh, today, but, but, but on that day, I was, I was proud of my, I was proud of my president. Um, I feel like she's, uh, she's got uh, ice water running through her veins. She knows what she's doing, but she also knows how to crank up the patriotism uh, when appropriate. And hopefully this will, um, help the Taiwanese people be more unified. And Sean, what about the comments by Mind Joe in response to Xi Jinping's statement? Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of like the same song and dance. Like I said, I thought I, I experienced some deja vu, and uh, so I googled 2020 and 2019, and lo and behold, there was Mind Joe again, and he basically said the same thing as usual. Uh, generally, uh, you know that. 
they're they're upset about Thai speech. Uh, of course, uh, last year it was about how he said that uh, you know uh, we need to have stronger connections with China. You know that was there last year too, and the year prior. He also said you know in response to Xi Jinping, and he also said that uh, you know that Thai doesn't do enough to cater ties with Beijing. That that. He, she doesn't say the ROC enough, or she says ROC Taiwan, Taiwan uh, essentially kind of positioning the KMT themselves, or Mindjo trying to position the KMT as supposedly the only defenders of the ROC. Of course, I read the entirety of Tsai Ing-wen's speech, and she didn't say that the ROC only existed for 72 years. And last year, he said he accused Tsai of saying the ROC only existed for 71. Instead, she had said that. Uh, the KMT came to Taiwan, the ROC came to Taiwan uh, 71 and 72 years ago, respectively, which is correct. Uh, there's nothing incorrect about that. But I guess that they understand that their own base won't really listen to Thai speech. So there's that. And uh, so they can basically have free reign in making their own claims. And Angelica, I mean, do you agree that basically Beijing listing the 1992 consensus and its one China principle separately is an important message and means there's 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 wiggle room for both sides to maintain their differences of opinion? Or do you think that's complete baloney? Uh, the 92 consensus at this point is just dead as a dodo. I mean, um, Gavin, um, at one point, it might have served as some sort of a basis. It was always a kind of weird fiction where it's like, okay, if we believe in one China and it's us, and you believe that it's one China and it's you, then we're in agreement. Yahtzee, let's uh, open up trade and make some money. And um, that was a basis, but it was always kind of silly. And uh, in recent years, it's really gotten defined, hardened on both sides to a version that's not acceptable to the other side, right? And in China's example, it's the most obvious because, you know, the 92 consensus in their mind really has a hardened to this one country, two systems kind of thing. That is very different from the KMT interpretation of uh, one country, two interpretations, right? And um, we've seen what happened in Hong Kong one country, two systems is not an acceptable um, solution outcome for uh, the vast, vast majority of Taiwanese. It doesn't matter blue or green. Um, so therefore, I think the 1992 consensus is a bit of a dead letter. And I'm surprised that Ma Ying-jeou keeps um, hanging on to it, much like he ha tries to hang on to his face from 20 years ago through plastic surgery, but it's not working. Moving on now, the Central Epidemic Command Center this week announced that it will be launching an expanded coronavirus vaccination program next month to reach a full coverage rate of more than 60% by the end of this year. Now, speaking at a legislative hearing, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong dismissed lawmakers' questions, which focused on herd immunity, saying that no one talks about achieving herd immunity nowadays, but rather how vaccination can reduce severe coronavirus cases and deaths. Chen told lawmakers that the short-term 
goal is to achieve a first dose vaccination coverage rate of more than 70% and a full vaccination coverage rate of more than 30% by the end of this month. Now, there was also talk this week about giving priority to fully vaccinated migrant workers when an entry ban on them is lifted. Labour Minister Xu Ming-chun first announced that the government is working on lifting its entry ban on overseas workers due to labour shortages late last month. But she expanded on the measures being discussed this week, saying incoming migrant workers will be required to present a certificate of vaccination and a negative PCR test result taken within three days before their departure. They will also still be required to undergo a mandatory 14-day quarantine and follow a week-long self-health management protocol. However, the Labour Minister didn't offer a time frame for when the entry ban on migrant workers could be lifted. The government, of course, first banned the entry of Indonesian migrant workers in December of last year due to a serious coronavirus flare-up in that country. And it then barred entry to all migrant workers on May the 19th of this year, following the sudden spike in the domestic coronavirus cases here. Now, another interesting story this week, or rather the most interesting one of the lot, was that an associate professor of the National Tsinghua University made the news after touting, well, a plan to create an emo face mask. Now, Professor Bao Xiangying turned to artificial intelligence in the, the bid to help people express themselves from behind their coronavirus pandemic-related face masks. And Bao says the emo mask is an interactive electronic device that gauges emotions with speech recognition and sensors and outputs feelings, semantic animations and other interactive messages on a display panel. And the associate professor says she believes that emo masks could be useful in factories, hospitals and tertiary service industries. However, she did admit the development is still in the very, very initial stages and the specialised mask has not been developed yet for commercial use. So, Sean, there we go. I mean, we've got vaccination coverages by the end of this month. That's 70 percent. Basically, good, good, good news, I guess, if it comes out. Oh, yeah, indeed. Um, you, you know, one of the biggest challenges for Taiwan isn't uh, that we can't give out those shots fast enough. Uh, we can. Uh, so far, the hospitals have done a fantastic job in giving out those shots. The real problem is our the fact that shipments have been slow. Uh, only about five, six nations in out of about 196 nations in the world have more than enough vaccines. Everyone else is waiting on supply. Same thing in Taiwan here. However, uh, this also means that we have about 15 days to dole out approximately 4.5 million doses. Can we do it? I do think so. It is aggressive given the tight time frame. Uh, we're making progress, uh, but the main goal, of course, is to have uh, most people fully vaccinated. But to hit 70% in the first shot in such a short time, even compared to many other nations like uh, South Korea or Japan, which have in comparatively a far and not as much of a vaccine shortage uh, shows that Taiwan, I think, is doing a very good job. Uh, you know, let's keep in mind that it's over the hundredth day in which South Korea has had over a thousand cases. In Taiwan, we kind of freak out a little bit if we even have ten. So so far, we've had many days or most days where there's no local infections at all. So so far, I think we're doing a fantastic job. Uh, as mentioned before, Tsai even thanked people in her speech for people continuing to wear surgical masks. There's been many studies that show that surgical masks are a key thing. Surgical masks are better. They're far better than, uh, you know, in many other countries using alternative masks like cloth masks and other types. And that it is more than one study has shown that it's been pivotal. So I think Taiwan is doing a good job right now.
Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely in agreement with Sean, because uh, in 2020, there's still quite a list of countries who did fairly well in keeping out um, the coronavirus. And uh, in this year, they just fall, fall, they just fell like Skittles, like Vietnam did such a great job, just crumbled. And Taiwan, while we had our own outbreak, we managed to contain it and push it down, which really surprised and delighted me, even after community spread. And we managed to contain three Delta clusters. And I believe, like Sean, that it is the mask. It is the disciplined mask wearing of the Taiwanese people. Um, in, a, in addition to the great government support and the track and trace um, program and the leadership given by the CECC that has allowed us to, to do this and to still enjoy this relatively normal life. Now, here comes the problem though. We, uh, it has come at a cost of being basically still close to the world. It's like the country of Taiwan is effectively under quarantine and uh, you know people cannot tra travel out of the country or in easily. And it, it is, uh, it's been terrible for people who have to work in Taiwan. And uh, so that's the problem there. But uh, maybe overall, the cost, um, when you add up the pros and the cons, it, it is worthwhile um, that you get to have this. Of course, Angelica, there is a labour shortage now due to the fact that migrant workers have been technically banned from coming in since basically May of this year. Yes, yes, and absolutely. And it's it's been terrible. And um, the industry I feel like I can most speak to is the offshore wind industry, where many, many, many um, workers have had their lives disrupted, not just in terms of not being able to come to Taiwan to work, but being stuck on boats and not being able to get off. And uh, you have to understand, Gavin, at some point it becomes a mental health issue because uh, those those uh, work vessels are giant tin cans. And um, uh, I, I felt like uh, you've seen there the Taiwanese CECC has been more than strict. They've been draconian in terms of allowing movement of people on and off the boats. And I do think that it is one of the unfortunate aspects of our uh, policy is that we've been so strict and so good in so many ways but we did. We maybe they didn't have the bandwidth to look at um, the, the humanity side of the equations. That people need to come in and come out. People need to work. People need to get home to their loved ones. Um, so uh, if if they could have spent a bit more time and energy on that, and uh, given people a bit more flexibility, it would have earned Taiwan so much goodwill from um, the people that have come here and worked so hard for our economy. And Sean, of course, work labor shortage, we need migrant workers, but they're still banned. Yeah, we have a worker shortage of over 20,000, um, especially compared to our high back in 2019. And it is something that we do need to consider, which is because the policy is going to be the same, right? Uh, all the It's been stated that even incoming migrant workers, they'll have to present a, cert a certificate of vaccination. They need a negative PCR test result within three days before the departure. They still need to go under the mandatory 14-day quarantine, which as of this moment, they will have to pay a hotel uh, to do so. They cannot do it at a residence or sponsored location otherwise. 
So it's still going to be very costly for the migrant workers to come in, and employers are willing to pay, though, at this point. So I do think that perhaps uh, it is time that we do let fully vaccinated migrant workers in. It's not like those are in shortage anymore, because Taiwan's industry, just like the rest of East Asia, does depend on migrant workers on a large on a large scale. Uh, a lot of the factories, for example, in Kaohsiung, uh, in, in Taoyuan, in Shinzu, they depend on migrant workers uh, for, in a large part. So I think if they're fully vaccinated, uh, adult, they can also discriminate, I guess, on the type of vaccines or what have you, just like m- most other nations are. But there does need to be a procedural pathway because uh, right now a blanket ban might be an issue. As Angelica said, it could be a bandwidth issue. Um, you know, these things are very highly complicated. And of course, uh, there's also the fear that there could be another uh, outbreak. I do want to point out that many of the outbreaks are from Taiwan nationals coming back to Taiwan, not necessarily following the roles or occasionally a pilot or someone else or perhaps an airline worker, not necessarily these migrant workers. I also should also point out that our treatment of migrant workers have been unequal, uh, much like the rest of Asia. I get it, but we could do better. So uh, overall, yeah, we need to have this process and we need to get it rolling as soon as possible. Not but only sure. for the- do we yes. need emo masks? <laughs> so I looked into this a lot, the emo mask concept. Um, when it comes to electronics, uh, the more weight you put on your ears, the more complicated it is. I do. I, do, I read her. I read her paper, and I saw the the diagrams and everything. It's a lot of technology to put in because the mask consists of an LED array and a sort of plastic covering and you're supposed to wear it over your existing mask and it's supposed to have sensors to detect your mouth but when you look at people and i know nowadays due to the pandemic people haven't seen much of each other except for zoom uh, there's a lot of micro expressions especially when people are when they emphasize a certain word or they're exaggerating and so forth so To have an LED array, a 2D LED array, a low-resolution LED array to actually be able to express opinions is really difficult. Uh, There's also other problems, too. You have to put all those batteries, all those sensors, all all those LED arrays, all that is weight on your ears in front of your face. It's going to get even more hot. It's going to get more difficult to communicate. There's been many other more practical solutions I've seen uh, from other companies, such as Razer, where they designed a plastic but clear face mask with the filters pushed to the side around the cheeks. This way you could see people's expressions and when they talk. And many of them, including one model from LG, uh, includes a microphone and speaker system. So not only can you hear, uh, it's see, not only can you better hear people, but you could also see their mouth movements in real time with no delay, no latency and other than that. Uh, but as the professor said, it was a very early concept. I'd definitely love to see any progress on this one. But given Given the cost and the design, I think clear face masks with filters on the side are far more practical, far lighter, and far more efficient, too. So we'll see. Because, of course, it's too heavy on the ears. And, of course, face mask, ear, Angelica. Have you have you been suffering from face mask, ear? You know, I, I, I really haven't. I think, I think I just got so used to them that they don't bother me at all. But I absolutely agree with Sean. This is a case of over-engineering a problem that should be simple. And it kind of reminded me of that old story about the American NASA going through enormous expense 
to uh, invent a pen that can write in space uh, because you know there's no gravity. And then um, after the Cold War, they asked the, the Russian counterparts, well, how did you guys manage it? And uh, the Russians simply said, well, we use pencils. And uh, I think this is one of those uh, issues where really um, it's a very clever engineering solution, but maybe it's, it's too much for the problem we have, or non-problem, I should say, because I think um, even with masks on, uh, I personally am also not a a fan of the transparent mask concept that I've seen. I think it's just easier for people to just, um, you know, the eyes can do a lot of the talking. You can hear each other. I, I, I think surgical masks are fine just as they are. And on that note, we'll take a short break now for these rather important commercials, but we will return shortly. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the Ministry of Economic Affairs on Tuesday announced plans to relocate the controversial Taoyuan liquefied natural gas terminal. But that only opened up another can of controversy as the plans for that were released only hours before an environmental impact assessment meeting was due to take place. Now, Deputy Economics Minister Tsang Wen-sheng told reporters that scientific evidence shows that the revised plan will be much friendlier to the environment. The government first proposed building the LNG terminal within 750 metres of the Taoyuan coast, but environmentalists opposed that plan, arguing that it would damage a coastal algal reef located at the planned construction site. The government's latest plan, though, is to locate the terminal site 1.2 kilometres out to sea. Now, the Rescue Dartan's Algal Reefs Alliance was so angered by the project in the initial stages that it initiated a national referendum on the LNG project, which will now go to the vote in December. Now, the government has said the relocation of the LNG terminal will push the project's completion date back by two and a half years to 2025 and cost an additional 15 to 75 billion NT. And it's also warning that if the referendum passes and plans to build the LNG terminal are scrapped, it will then cost Taiwan an annual power production of 13.7 billion kilowatt hours. So, Angelica, the Algal Reef and the LNG terminal are still controversial, of course, in the run up to the referendum? Well, I have to uh, put in a little piece of precision there, Gavin. Um, the uh, proposal to push out the LNG plant further uh, was uh, done um, back in May. So uh, they actually presented the proposal back in May in response to environmentalist concerns. And what happened yesterday was uh, they presented the information on the impact of that plant um, for the Environmental Impact Assessment Committee. Now, in my, my point of view is that the environmentalists cannot be reasoned with. There's no amount of evidence you can give them that the new plant is going to be of minimal or even no disruption to the algal reef ecosystem, which exists pretty close to the shore. It's already been pushed out, um, I don't know, 750 meters. And I, to my satisfaction, the MOEA um, did very clear um, oceanographic um, at research that shows that um, at that at those depths, um, in fact, a lot of the uh, flow of the sands caused the algal reefs to be periodically covered by sand. 
and then the ocean currents take them away. And when you have that kind of condition where it's periodically covered by sand and then carried away, covered by sand, carried away, you can't really have the kind of vibrant algal reef ecosystem that you do closer to shore. Um, but for me, uh, the environmentalists have way crossed the line from dealing with this from a scientific issue into an emotional issue. And they're not looking at the big picture, Gavin, which is um, that if we don't use liquefied natural gas, which I admit is a fossil fuel and does put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then Taiwan has two choices. First of all, it would either have to deindustrialize, goodbye TSMC, we don't have the electricity for your chip making, or we're going to have to keep burning more coal. And that, that um, um, the amount of LNG that that terminal would be able to bring in, if we don't have that, that's the equivalent of, of burning 5 million more tons of coal per year, the dirtiest kind of fossil fuel, and not just one that pumps twice the amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as liquefied natural gas, but also pumps out this awful pollution that the lungs of the people in Taichung and uh, other coal fire plants all over Taiwan are going to have to absorb. So um, I, I would really like, to the extent that people in Taiwan are listening to this, encourage everybody uh, to, to look at the bigger picture and not let a uh, symbolic uh, environmental concern override an actual environmental concern, which is how can Taiwan reduce its greenhouse gas emissions and give us cleaner air? And to do that, we need the liquefied natural gas. And that is that will come from the third natural gas receiving terminal in Datan, because the first two are already running at 104% um, capacity. Well, uh, indeed, there's also quite a lot of controversy, uh, not only because of everything that Angelica said, which is that we cannot sacrifice uh, all of our uh, industry and economy, actually, uh, based on this and, you know, still want cheap energy and whatnot. Indeed, uh, the coal plant itself uh, is horribly damaging to the environment itself. Taizong has the largest coal plant facility among the world, and the amount of pollution it produces, if one checks uh, AQICN.org every year, you'll see or all the time you'll see that that pinprick of that really uh you know high pollution area it's it's in red is always there and yes that damages the environment too uh furthermore um you know the reefs are only up to 18 meters deep so the where they're proposing to relocate uh um the the the, the receiving uh stations for lng is far farther uh than you know than anywhere close to these uh, uh algae reefs so therefore uh, i do think that taiwan's already spending billions of dollars it could be as much as 2.6 billion dollars by the way uh and there are rising energy costs but, you know, LNG burns far more cleanly. It's not ideal, but it does burn far more cleanly than the coal plants. We do need to replace those coal plants as soon as possible. They cause a lot of damage to our environment as well, uh, you know, and they also cause a huge health concern uh, concerns to people. There are, people are always talking about carbon offsets. I mean, you could be the greenest person on the earth, but, you know, even you, you can even make everybody in Taiwan twice as green, but it will not 
not beat the the offset from the problems from those coal plants. So uh, it's also been very politicized too. Unfortunately, um, there's a referendum to guard the algae reef, but unfortunately, it's also been tied with uh, all sorts of things like from referendums tied to electoral electoral elections to Ractoport to everything else, you know, under the sun. And so it's caused a lot of issues. It, I also need to point out that the KMT has backed, uh, quote unquote, preservation of the algae reef, but it's gone far beyond that. And uh, the environmentalists have also, unfortunately, tied them to other reefs that are a little bit north and south of it and sort of tried to tie them together as one big thing. But it's not really it's kind of complicated situation and it's caused problems. But even for the KMT itself, uh, it's really ironic because the Taoyuan government is you know, has supported uh, this proposal, this new construction uh, that makes it more environmentally friendly. At the same time, while the KMT is against it, the, the central KMT is against it. So which is it? It's a lot of politics involved as well. I mean, do you think the government needs to go and explain that to voters quite obviously? But I mean, obviously explaining how this algal reef is like 200 meters away from the algal reef that's in danger might be a bit difficult for the layman to understand. Yeah, and that's one of the problems with a lot of politics in Taiwan. There's just not enough uh, bandwidth to explain very complicated things. You know, how do you explain to people that okay, this algae reef is only 18 meters far, so you know this this receiving uh, station is going to be too far away, so it won't affect it. There's currents. There's the way you know it, it's actually different biomes too, apparently, where um, the methodology in assessing how the algae where the algae is and so forth is very different and also the 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 biology i've read some papers and they were saying like okay the biology where the receiving station is is relatively barren versus a separated area where the algae reef is and also the kind of sonar and equipment they used to detect where the algae was uh, by some of the environmentalists maybe due to funding or other issues was not as accurate uh whereas uh, the energy companies obviously had much more money to do so uh i I do think there is a incentive for uh, uh, Taiwan state uh, uh, energy companies to downplay the amount of the biomes and whatnot. However, it does seem from the outset that their equipment is more accurate and that therefore uh, the environmentalists may be overstating uh, uh, the size of the algae and the algae reefs and how far they go. So I do think that the government has tried their best to acknowledge this problem. Uh, they have made a lot of changes. They are communicating with the community, which, by the way, is not something that happened in the past. In the past, they would be sort of dodgy about it. But here they're actually having an active communication. So this debate is not to be seen as a bad thing. It's actually encouraged and actually a good thing. But Angelica, I mean, do you think the government has its work cut out for itself explaining the actual situation here? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let me just point out one little point of irony is that this whole LNG receiving plant project actually began um, in the 90s, was sketched out by the KMT. And here they are, strangers, political bedfellows in history, because the KMT I've never really seen it actually care about the environment, joined up with the environmentalists to put this referendum in place. And I believe um, it's not good for Taiwan. And its only goal is to kick uh, President Tsai's energy transition plans squarely in the ribs because we're supposed to go to 50 percent LNG by 2025. And that cannot happen without that receiving station. Um, 
But yes, yes, Sean is absolutely right. Um, unlike previous governments, <laughs> cough, cough, um, the, uh, the, the DPP is communicating and they have tried and they have pushed out the terminal um, way beyond uh, what I think is necessary to pr protect those algorithms. Um, but the problem is the environmentalists aren't really listening. And you do have this faction in Taiwan that, that I don't know what they're going to be satisfied with. I mean, uh, I, I, do they want Taiwan to deindustrialize? That's that's not an option for most Taiwan people. So they push on those emotional issues like, oh, we have to protect our precious algorithms. But I believe the government, if they starkly put um, the the actual choices on the table, is do you want Taiwan with sufficient electricity, or do you want rolling blackouts like we've been seeing uh, across <laughs> across the Taiwan streets in China? If you can put it in such stark terms, I believe most people will make the right choice. And before we go this week, the Taipei Rapid Transit Corporation called on passengers to be aware of their surroundings and cease staring at their mobile devices when moving around the stations and on trains and basically every piece of property owned by the Taipei Rapid Transit Corporation. Now, the call came after the Metro company announced that 73 commuters suffered for what it's describing as distracted walking injuries in the transit system from between January and August of this year. And that figure is about half of all the injuries reported to MRT staff during that time frame. Now, the Rapid Transit Corporation has posters on station walls and also gives regular announcements on the station PA systems, urging passengers to be, well, spatially aware. The Metro Corporation is now stepping up that campaign to rein in the number of smart device casualties by describing looking at a screen while walking as one of the worst habits you can actually develop. Although it didn't say whether looking at your phone basically when walking around a station that topped picking your nose in public. But of course, motorists caught using mobile phones face a fine of 3,000 NT under the Road Traffic Management and Penalty Act. So, Sean, should pedestrians also be fined when using their mobile devices in certain indoor places? Okay, so, <laughs> so when I saw this headline, I was rather... Um, curious so i actually took a trip to uh my closest subway station and i decided to ride the mrt again i usually ride my scooter or take a taxi but uh and i noticed that quite a lot of people are walking with their cell phones it's going to be very difficult to find everybody but upon research i also realized that this has been a global problem this isn't just taiwan undergoing this but considering that there's 1.5 million rides a day on the you know the taipei mrt system that only having 73 cases even if we triple that isn't relatively that much uh, so I, I wouldn't say it's an epidemic going everywhere however however uh, I do think that I do worry about people for example falling off stairs or you know uh, so there are basic things that they could tell people perhaps you know if you're gonna use your phone Use it one-handed, not both hands. If you're going to walk, try to maintain your peripheral vision. If you're going to, you know, just little habit things here and there. 
But, I mean, this is par for the course. Uh, apps are getting more engrossing than ever. Uh, social media has been proven to be working on engagement. So people are glued to their phones. You're not going to be able to change that, even with fines. They tried that in other countries. Uh, even in the United States, fines for texting while driving, while going on the, you know, while, while operating vehicles have increased dramatically, yet people are still doing it. It's increased by twofold. So, Angelica, do you look at your phone on the MRT or are you spatially aware? Oh, my goodness, Gavin. Guilty as charged. I feel personally called out (laughs) by these announcements because I am, in fact, a phone addict. But I will say I will push back strongly against any kind of equation sign between pedestrians using their phone while ambulatory and drivers texting while operating a a motor vehicle, which is like a, you know, a, a metal death machine that could crash into other people. I feel like for us pedestrian phone ambulatory users, the people we hurt are most often ourselves. We walk into each other. We walk into street furniture. Uh, <laughs> we might fall up the stairs, although I'm not on wood that hasn't happened to me yet. Um, but I, I just don't see it as that big of a problem. And instead of, um, I feel like the kind of nanny state message that, you know, oh, it's so terrible to look at your phones on the MRT. Let's face it, it's one of the great things about having public transit is that you're not behind the wheel. You are free to look at your phone. Um, um, what's wrong with that? Um, I think uh, it, it's, it's better to just kind of remind all of us to to be more present in our lives and uh, the role that devices can play uh, insidiously to take away our attention and uh, um, maybe just a, a, a softer encouragement to encourage everybody to uh, just be in the present. And whether you're on the MRT or walking down the street, just enjoy being where you are and leave that phone in your pocket. Yeah, indeed. As Angelica said, it is different from operating a vehicle. And indeed, uh, you know, articles have all mentioned that distracted vehicle and scooter drivers are the main culprit out of all of this. For those in the MRT stations, most of them were fall injuries. And so therefore, better signage, better grips on staircases. Uh, like I said, encouraging them to one-handed if you really need to watch your phone while going up or just take the escalator that would make things a lot easier but again out of 1.5 million per day having only 73 cases roughly from january to august for half a year is not a lot you know, uh, the, the percentage here is so abysmally tiny that perhaps the problem would be more between those 73 cases versus you know the 1.5 million every day that don't seem to have an issue. And like I said, under my personal unscientific observation, there was quite a lot of people on their phones, but having no problems transiting. Uh, you know, so let them enjoy their time on the subway, uh, precisely because no one will be harmed by their inattention for the most part. We only that- hurt ourselves, Gavin. We only hurt ourselves. <laughs> Unless you walk into someone else. That could be the start of a Hollywood romantic. Uh, <laughs> uh, scene. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, on that note, we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Angelica Ong. Thanks for having me, Gavin. And Sean Sue. 
Nice to be back again. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.